The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Justice Richard Bernstein will now present his lecture, Justice is Blind. Good afternoon, everyone. Introducing the topic of justice is something which is incredibly central within Judaism. The first moment that the Torah introduces the topic of where Abraham fights for justice in, in Sodom, God says, how can I not share this with Abraham? He is the one who educates and shares with his children and his entire household to go in the derech Hashem, in the pathway of God, which is to do tzedakah umishpat, to do righteousness and justice. How many of us are not familiar with the verse, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof? Justice, justice shall you pursue. A judge should not take any bribes because bribery blinds the wise and corrupts the words of the righteous. Today, we are very fortunate, we're privileged to have with us an amazing judge, Justice Richard Bernstein, who's been blind since birth, physically blind, but not morally blind. Blind to what we all see in front of us, but Justice Bernstein is not blind to truth, not blind to bringing justice. He's been elected to Michigan's highest course in, court in 2014. And in his spare time, Justice Bernstein is also an avid runner, completing 21 marathons, including 12 in New York City, which is a feat in itself. A full Ironman triathlon and a half Ironman. It is my distinct honor and privilege to call upon Justice Richard Bernstein. A young mother reached out to me on a morning. As we go through our lives, there are certain conversations that we have that tend to stay with us because they shape us. They shape who we are. They shape the decisions that we make. And they ultimately shape the road that we're going to travel. And she said, Richard, I'm calling you because I know that you care about people with disabilities. I know that you care about children with special needs. But I am calling you because I want to understand why it is that I can be a good person. I can be a pious person. I can be a righteous person. I follow all the rules. I do everything that is asked. So why is it that of all the people in the world, Hashem would choose me 
to be a mom of children, a child with special needs. I visit my friends. I see how they live. I see their homes and the energy and the enthusiasm that they have. I see all the children running and playing. I see homes of joy and spirit and renewal. And I ask why it is of all the people Hashem would choose me. So tell me what kind of a life is my newborn going to have? Is he going to have any friends? Is he going to go to school? Do you think I'm ever going to be a grandma? Will my child ever live on his own? What's going to happen when I am no longer here to care for him? When do you think my life and my family's life will ever be ordinary again? And when do you think we will finally reach a point we will no longer have to suffer? I remember having a conversation right after my election to Michigan's highest court. We were talking about what are the qualities that go into being a good judge? What are the qualities that go into such a position where you're deciding people's freedom? You're deciding people's livelihood. You're making decisions that impact and affect the lives of entire communities. What kind of a quality must a person have to be able to render such verdicts. And people responded by saying, well, I imagine it's all about what school you went to, the college you attended, what your grades were, your academic prowess, your ability to research and to write and to publish. And I remember responding by saying, I think you've missed the absolute most fundamental quality that goes into being a good judge. When asked what that was, I responded by saying, life experience. Hashem gives us our life experiences for a reason. He gives us our life experiences for a purpose. It is our life experiences that tell our story. And it's through our story we're able to relate, to understand, to appreciate the struggles, the hardships, the difficulties that our friends, that our neighbors, that our community members have to face each and every day. He gives us our life experiences for a reason. He gives us our life experiences so that we can do something with them. That we can use the challenges, the hardships, and the difficulties 
to have an impact, to have an effect, to truly empathize and understand, to come to know people in ways that we haven't had a chance to know them before and through connecting with people, we are able to come to know Hashem. I remember answering the eternal question that all of us seek. We come to Chabad because we want some answers. We want to understand why it is going back to the book of Job that if Hashem is so merciful, if Hashem is so kind, if Hashem is so all-knowing, why is it that he allows for bad things to happen to otherwise such good people? Why is it that there are some who walk among us that have to know a greater struggle that have to know a greater hardship, that have to know a greater difficulty than others can possibly imagine or even attempt to comprehend. It's okay, I told this mom, to be frustrated. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be sad. We don't always have to smile. We don't always have to have joy. We don't always have to be the happiest person in the room. That's not real. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be frustrated. And I believe it's okay to be angry with Hashem. So why is it that bad things happen to otherwise such good people? And why is it that there are some who come to know a greater hardship or a greater challenge or a greater struggle than others? An easy life does not always correspond to a good one. Often it is those who have to face these struggles, who have to know loss, who have to know loneliness, who have to know sadness, who have to know poor health, who have to find things and experience things that's difficult to explain, difficult to understand, difficult to find reason. Why, if Hashem is so good, does he allow for such pain? Does he allow for such difficulty? Especially amongst those who are so righteous, who are so innocent, who seem to endure so much. You come to find as you go through life that often it's the case that you're able to learn a sense of perspective through challenge and difficulty, through hardship. You're able to realize what is important 
versus what is not. You're able to prioritize what is critical versus what is not. And what you come to find is something quite significant. In many situations, so many of us who are here today are going to face setbacks. They're going to face transition. They're going to face tragedy. And so often, people will come to you and they're going to say, oh, you're going to get through this. Oh, you're going to make a full recovery. Oh, everything is going to be okay. But you know what? For most of us, it's not. Things aren't going to be okay. But the power comes in finding a way to adapt. Adapting to your new circumstance. Adapting to your new situation. Adapting to your new life. The power is not always in recovery. The power is in finding a way to adapt to this new reality, to this new circumstance, to this new world, to this new focus that you are now going to be a part of. And I have come to find that as you face many dark hours and days and weeks and months, if you're able to find one good thing, just one, that can help you to find a sense of equilibrium. It can give you a sense of balance. For that one thing that you can cling to, for that one thing that you can take pride in, for that one thing you can find some joy, can help to balance out all the rest. Now, as you heard in the introduction, I have been blessed to have had the opportunity of completing 21 marathons and a full Ironman competition. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Ironman, it is a 2.4-mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike to be completed by a 26.2-mile run. The rules of the competition are quite simple. If you stop, if you rest, if you take a break, you run the risk of missing a cutoff. If a cutoff is missed, you will be immediately disqualified from the competition. If you finish at 12.05 instead of 12 o'clock, it is like you were never even there. Two years of effort, work, and training will literally be for nothing. So I invite you to picture, if you would, the feeling you would have as you dive into a frigid body of water. The water temperature that morning of Lake Coeur d'Alene was 55 degrees. Imagine swimming in total darkness. You don't have any idea where you started. You don't have any idea where you're going. And you don't have any idea where you are. You're unable to communicate with your guide because he's underwater and so are you. The only way you know which direction to go is by the rope 
that is around your waist and around his. But as you swim, you repeatedly get kicked in the face by all the other competitors. And being blind, you can't brace for the ensuing impact. You try to surface, but it's impossible because there's other people immediately above you. And lastly, the rope that you rely on to connect you to your guide becomes entangled and ensnared with other swimmers. And as it becomes entangled, the rope starts to constrict. And as the rope constricts, it starts taking you below the surface. The harder you push, the harder you swim, the quicker you get dragged below the waves. You try to get oxygen, you try to get air, but it becomes almost impossible. Ultimately, when you can't get the air your body so desperately needs, you start to feel a drowning sensation. It's easy to have a relationship with Hashem when life is good. It's easy to have a relationship with Hashem when you know great health, when your family is safe, when your business is prospering. But I believe the essence of a real relationship is how it is when things aren't going so well when your life has taken a different course, when things haven't worked out the way that you had hoped, when you know struggle, when you lose a loved one, when you're a parent who loses a child, when you're a son who loses a mom, when you know cancer, when you know sickness, when you know poor health, when you know trauma, when you know injury, How is the relationship at that point? It's not easy. But I believe the essence of a real relationship comes when you are angry, comes when you think it's unfair, comes through frustration, comes through difficulty. For that is a real relationship. It is a father to a son. The son will always rebel towards the father. But in the end, no matter how angry or frustrated you get, no matter how disappointed you are, no matter how many names you shriek out, you always know that your father will always be there. You always know that you can depend on your father. You always know that things are going to find their way to working out. There will be anger. There will be frustration. There will be arguing. There will be all of those emotions. But in the end, it is those emotions that cultivate the genuine power of the relationship because the relationship becomes real. The relationship becomes solid. The relationship becomes firm. And it's through the relationship that you come to find something extraordinary. You come to find that, yes, there are so many of us who are mortal. There are so many of us who are infirmed. But it is always those people whose spirits and souls have incredible resilience, have remarkable strength, 
and are able to reach and touch the face of Hashem. Why is it that bad things happen to otherwise such good people? And why is it that there are some who have to know a greater struggle or greater hardship than others can possibly imagine? Life can change at an instant. It was a beautiful day in New York Central Park. I've learned how to navigate the park independently. I'm able to do it without a guide or without an escort. I've memorized the loop that serves as a circumference. And as I was walking in the pedestrian lane, it was a beautiful August morning, 85 degrees and sunny. And since I had learned that loop, I could do it on my own. And as I was walking, I had done at that point 17 marathons and an Ironman. And I was thinking about how excited I was that the New York City Marathon was around the corner. As I walked in the pedestrian lane, a bicyclist was traveling at a speed of an excess of 35 miles an hour, which is, for those of you from New York, incredibly commonplace within Central Park because the bicyclists often use it for racing and don't always pay regard to pedestrians. And in doing so, what happened in this situation was the bicyclist, who was a kind and warm and very decent person, unfortunately was going at such a high rate of speed that he was unable to maintain control of his bicycle. And in doing so, veered into the pedestrian lane where I was walking and struck me directly in the back. Now, a 35-mile impact is catastrophic to say the least. Yes, life can change at an instant. This required over 10 weeks of hospitalization at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital. In life, it's always about the little things. We come to these events and we focus on the big picture. We focus on the big issues. But life is always about the little things, never the big. You miss what it was like to have the opportunity to use the bathroom. You miss how it felt to have the chance to take a warm shower. You miss how it felt to sleep through the night without having to arrive at an indescribable level of pain. People used to come and visit. I'd always ask them to tell me, where are you going to go after you leave here today? They'd always say in a very rudimentary, mundane way that they were going to go and do some shopping or they were going to go and meet some friends or take care of some errands. And they'd always say it in a very blasé fashion. I'd always tell them, those are the things that people crave. Those are the things that people pray for. Those are the things that people dream about. 
Life is never about the big things. It is always about the small things. It is always about the little things. It's always about the idea of having a chance to go for dinner, the idea of having a chance to go to work, the idea of using public transportation, the idea of being outside, the idea of talking to people, the idea of being able to go to a party, the idea in my situation of what it would be like to visit the hospital lobby and to get off my floor. It's never the big. It is always the little. It is the little things that go to the essence, that go to the core of who we are as people, of why we are created, of what life is and what is meant to truly be. It is never the big. It is always the little. What I would always ask people to do, especially for the younger people, You have to celebrate every victory in your life. You have to celebrate every achievement and every accomplishment. No matter how small or insignificant you might think it is, it is a cause for joy. It is a cause for celebration. In my situation, I would celebrate the fact that I could sit up in bed. I would celebrate the fact that I could start using a walker and I would celebrate the fact that I could make it to the end of the ward and actually have a chance to visit the nurses. We celebrate those small victories. For many of us, pain is a physical reality. In my situation, the pain is always there. It never goes away, but it's truly a metaphor. Pain isn't something to be ignored. Pain isn't something that you overpower. Pain isn't like Rocky where you say no pain. Pain is something to be respected. Pain is something to recognize. Pain is something to realize that it becomes a part of you. It was a short time ago, and it was time for the New York City Marathon. Now, this would be my 18th marathon, but my first after a catastrophic accident. Now, running the New York City Marathon with a shattered pelvis and shattered hip was going to be difficult, to say the least. It would be painful. It would be difficult. A pelvis and a hip both being shattered, is no easy feat. This would not be the kind of marathon I used to do. I used to be fast. I used to be a good runner. I used to be graceful. But it would be a marathon nonetheless. We'd have a team. We'd have our guides. We'd be out on the street. We wouldn't be fast. We'd be slow but we'd still be out there, still participating, still being on the team. If we ran to the streets of New York and reached the 59th Street Bridge at mile 18, the pain was becoming so severe that I remember reaching out to Hashem. 
I remember reaching out to him and saying, Hashem, I need this. I need to cross the finish. I need to make this. Please, please let me have this. And at that moment and at that time, you come to find that miracles do happen. The pain was becoming so intense that I was worried about losing consciousness. I was worried that I was going to pass out. That's when miracles do happen. You come to find a sense of peace. Peace with your new body. Peace with your new life. Peace with your new circumstance. But you come to find that you're able to make a peace with Hashem. So why is it that bad things happen to otherwise such good people? And why is it that there are some who have to know a greater hardship or struggle than others? I believe the answer goes something like this. At a certain point in life, you can't spend your time and your effort and your energy focusing on how you're going to get over it. For you come to realize at a certain point in life, you have no other choice but to just get on with it. For ultimately, it has often been said that those who face struggle, hardship, and challenge in life are the ones who will do what is hard to achieve no less than what is truly great. We have to look at our lives like a great novel, like a wonderful story. There will always be chapters of pain and setback and frustration, but it's only through those chapters you can come to find hope, joy, and triumph. We gather here today, we attend this conference because we want to celebrate life. Life for the good, but also life for the bad. If I hadn't been blessed with the life experiences that God chose for me, I wouldn't be a good justice. I wouldn't be as kind. I wouldn't be as empathetic. I wouldn't be as compassionate. I wouldn't be as understanding. Our life experiences are given to us for a reason. They're given to us for a purpose. But it truly is up to us to use those experiences that Hashem has given to us for the good, but mostly for the bad, to have our impact to have our effect, to create incredible change, to make life better. We celebrate who we are. We celebrate the journey that we're on. And we celebrate our relationship with Hashem. 
Most importantly, we celebrate the idea that extraordinary things can, will, and must happen for us all. For yes, most of us are mortal. Most of us are infirmed. But it is our spirits and it is our souls that truly know no bounds. Yeah, well, definitely questions. So we'd be happy to do some questions, and I'm going to have our rabbis moderate, um, and uh, we'll take whatever questions you guys have. And as we run out of time, my answers will get quicker. So. <laughs> Yes. Oh, that's a yeah. So that's a great question. I'm just going to repeat this okay. question for a second. She's asking if the guide remains attached to you throughout the entire competition. Okay. So that's a great question, and the answer to your question is that absolutely. Now, here's the beautiful thing. This is the blessing that comes often from being a blind athlete, which is the guides that work with you are doing this exclusively so that you can have the experience as a disabled person. These are the most altruistic people that you're ever going to find because ultimately there's no record of them. When they do the marathon with you or when they do the Ironman with you, they register under your name and they use your number because the idea is that the guide is there for the athlete and the guide is there to allow for you to have that experience. It is a remarkable thing uh, that Achilles does because ultimately these are incredible guides, incredible people. They basically are doing it for the sole and exclusive reason to allow for me as a blind person to participate in this competition. So what will happen is the guide is always in better condition than the athlete. So the guide could do the marathon probably in half the time that I could do it, half the time. But they go at your pace so that you can have the experience of running. And that's the idea. So the guide, for all intents and purposes, it's not a codependent situation. The guide is incredible. I mean, the guy, the person I did the Ironman with was like an Olympic swimmer. So this is the kind of person where for him doing the Ironman isn't that much of a challenge. He does these kinds of things all the time. He was doing it for the exclusive reason so that I could have the chance to do it. So when you're running with a guide or swimming with a guide or biking with a guide, their entire purpose and focus is getting you through the competition. They are a remarkable people that basically do it ultimately quietly, and no one even knows they really exist, but it's done solely for you as the athlete to have that opportunity. It's a tremendous, tremendous gift that the guides give you. Okay, next question. I can repeat the question if it's okay because I, I can hear them really well. Repeat it for the I'll repeat it. Oh, of course. Of course. So I'll repeat the question because, guys, what's great is for being blind, I can hear everything. So, okay. And we're <laughs> okay. So, your question, please. Yes. So, when you're competing in a competition, yes. whether you're, you're swimming or running or uh, biking, when you get, when your guide gives you instructions, yes. Uh, to turn, 
Yes. Does he tell you or does he nudge you? How does it work? He tells you. And you have to pay very close attention to everything that your guide. Oh, the question was, how does it work? How does it work if you're doing an Ironman or doing a marathon? What are the logistics that exist between the athlete and the guide? So the way that it works is that your guide is going to give you directional cues as you're running. The guide is going to say, hard right, soft right, hard left, soft left. And you have to follow those directional cues implicitly when they're given. So often when people run, they go and they're able to focus on other things, which is what makes it easier. But when you're running with a team, and you usually run, you know, when you're doing a marathon, you usually have four to five guides that are with you because it's such a draining experience. But you have to focus the entire time that you're doing this. You have to focus. So when your guide says hard right, soft right, hard left, soft left, you have to act immediately. If he says hard right, you've got to turn to the right immediately. If he says soft right, that means that you you have time to kind of make a gradual turn. But the key is, is that you can't kind of fade away because if you don't take the instruction, he can grab you, but it's going to be too late. You're going to run into another person. You might trip over a curb. You might go into a hole. You know, you're going to hit an obstacle. So it needs to be immediate response, and the guide is going to talk to you the entire time. So the challenge with the Ironman is, is, is that the bike is, well, the swimming, as we covered in the presentation, they'll tug at the rope, and that's how you know which way to go. Now, when you're biking in the Ironman, you're going to use a tandem bike. So there's going to be a guide in the front, and you're going to pedal in the back with the guide. You're going to be pedaling together. But your guide is going to say to you, lean right, lean left, hard lean right, soft lean right, soft lean left, hard lean left. And if you don't follow the guide's instruction immediately, so if the guide says to you on the bike and you're pedaling together and you're in concert and you're in tandem and he says, okay, lean right, the bike is going to flip over because if you have one party leaning in one direction and you're not following his guidelines, the bike is going to literally flip. And what you have to understand is, is that when you're doing a bike, you're doing it through the mountains of Idaho. So you're doing 112 miles and you're sometimes going at a speed of an excess of 45 miles an hour. Because you have to be going at such a high rate of, oh, thank you. <laughs> you have to be going at such a high rate of speed because you've got to be getting enough speed to get down a mountain with two people on the bike to get up the mountain next to you. So like if you don't have high velocity going down, you're going to have a hard time making it up the next mountain. And the thing about an Ironman is that you have to be very focused when you're doing it because the Ironman that I did, there was a wonderful young lady who was not disabled who fell off of her bike and broke her neck. So these are very serious competitions that require a lot of work, a lot of discipline, a lot of focus, and a lot of training. You don't just show up and do it. But you got to want it. And if you want it, you can have it. But for me, it was two years of training and work for the Ironman. But the, and so now, after my injury, so that I've done the 21 marathons, I've done the full Ironman, I've done a half Ironman in Israel, and now I'm just doing, because of my injury, I'm now doing one marathon a year, and that's the New York City Marathon. Okay, other questions? Are you guys at all curious about how we do the job? Oh, thank you. And we can talk about how we do the job as a judge, as a blind person. I imagine there might be some curiosity as to how that works, if you can't see. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let someone ask the question. I 
Okay, the question was, what happened to the person that hit you on the bike? He was a super nice guy, a wonderful, wonderful person. Mistakes happen. He just lost control. That's the way life goes. You know what I mean? Like, he was a, a wonderful, wonderful person who just lost control of his bike. He had, there's nothing he could have done differently. He just unfortunately lost control, and things happen in life. That's just the way it is. Now, in answer to your question, I had to find a sense of purpose to this. Like I couldn't just accept that this was just a tragedy and that was it. There had to be something deeper. So I had no issues whatsoever with the person that hit me. None whatsoever. Things happen. Mistakes happen. That's the way life goes. I'm totally over it and fine. No issues with him at all. However, I did have an issue with New York City. And the reason I had an issue with New York City was because there was a number of things that New York could have done to make the park safer. They had a lot of people getting injured in the park. There was a lot of physical defects in the park. There were a lot of problems in the park and the city wasn't doing anything to correct it. And they knew, they knew that people were getting injured and hurt constantly in the park. So my issue was with the city and I, I was in so much pain when I was in the hospital, but it had to go somewhere. So what I ultimately did was I tried to reach out to the city and say, look, can we work on this together? That way we can fix the park together. There are simple things that you can do to this park that are going to cut down on the accidents. Now, it's not going to make it totally safe. Nothing other would. But why don't we do these things? Because if we do these things, we can take a bad situation. We can make it a little better. And the city's response to me was horrid. They were nasty and they were mean and they basically said, who do you think you are telling us how to run our park? Who do you think you are giving us these suggestions and these ideas? We're going to do none of it. And then I sued them. And so basically, <laughs> so this case actually, what this case kind of took a number of years and it, and it kind of went through the federal court system. And I would not give up on this case. I would not. I refused to stop because that would then render the pain that I have and the difficulties I face in life meaningless. So if that were to happen, it would, it would make it more difficult for me to kind of accept the injuries. So I refused to give up. And I remember in the trial court, in the federal system, we were, we, we were in federal court and, you know, the judge dismissed my case. She dismissed it. And it was very unfortunate. Now, here's the funniest thing that happened was this is, this is just, I believed in this so strongly. So the case was dismissed. And at that point, I Judge had, Bernstein requested to be given a five-minute notice. Oh, so we're almost there. Okay. This, this is it. Okay. So we're, we're going to, so the, so the, the case gets dismissed. In the meantime, I get elected by the people of the great state of Michigan to serve on their highest court. So now I become a Supreme Court justice in the meantime. So as all this is happening, the case gets dismissed, but now I am elected by the voters of Michigan to serve on our state's highest court. So people said, well, wait a minute, you're now a Michigan Supreme Court justice. You've been elected by millions of people to serve and represent the people of Michigan on its highest court. You are making decisions that affect people's lives, that affect everything about people. They said, do you think it's time to kind of drop this case and kind of move on because you are now a Supreme Court justice? And I refused. And I appealed. This is the best. I appealed it. I insisted that this case get appealed to the next, to the, to the, to the Court of Appeals, to the United States Court of Appeals. So I said, I am not giving up on this. I don't care that I'm a Michigan Supreme Court justice. I am appealing this case and I am taking it up to the U.S. Court of Appeals.
And the best part is we go up to the U.S. Court of Appeals and the U.S. Court of Appeals reverses the trial court and reinstates the lawsuit and brings it back down to the district court. And at that point, the city finally just said, what do you want? Let's just, we can't keep going through this because once you get a case, once you, once they got the case dismissed and then the court of appeals ruled, no, the case cannot be dismissed, then it has to go to trial. There's no way to avoid a trial. And at that point, the city just decided, let's start making these changes. Let's start fixing the park. So there was a number of things that the city started doing. They, they started installing traffic control devices. They started enforcing speed limits. They took out the traffic in the park. They did a lot of things. They researched the road, they widened the, they widened the road to allow for bicyclists and pedestrians to be farther removed. There was a whole number of changes that New York kind of put into place to make the park safer and better. Now, it's still dangerous. <laughs> I have to say, it's still dangerous and people are still getting hurt. And I'll just kind of end with this. The sad reality of this is while we were fighting with the city, um, just to show the significance of it and why we just couldn't give up, while we were fighting with the city in the time that the litigation was going and we were fighting with the city, two people were killed in Central Park by bikes. So two people were not as lucky as me. They are dead because they were struck by bicycles in Central Park in the same circumstance that I was. And so I think what it showed was, look, it's still dangerous, it's still problematic, there's still all kinds of issues that arise out of it. But I think what it goes down to is the idea that, you know, we were able to try to make something a little bit better, right? And sometimes in life, it's not always about making it perfect, it's never gonna be perfect. But it's the idea that you can at least say that out of this tragedy, out of this sadness, out of this difficulty, at least something came out of it. At least something was done to make a bad situation a little bit better. And if you can cling to that, it's what allows life to be truly well lived. So I don't know what our situation is. Are we done or do we have more questions or? In our last remaining moments, can oh. you just tell us a little bit about how you went through law school? <laughs> okay, so let's. <laughs> Okay, the question was, how do you actually get through law school and how do you practice and how do you do the kind of work that you do as a blind person in that situation? So we're gonna get cut off in a second, but I'm gonna just kind of try to answer the question as best as I possibly can. And the way I got through law school was, I had to memorize and internalize everything. If it takes you one hour to do something, it takes me five. So it's a, a one to five ratio for a blind person to do the work. So because of that, I you know, would work with readers and I'd have to internalize everything orally. And I'm just gonna tell you a very quick story. When I was in law school, it was so difficult. I went to Northwestern, a wonderful school, but it was so difficult and I struggled every day and I know this sounds crazy, but I prayed to Hashem and I said, look, Hashem, I really want to be a lawyer. Like I see all my friends and, and you know, they're doing really well, but they're not, they don't have to, it's, it doesn't seem to be as hard for them as it is for me. And I really want this. Like I really, if I become a lawyer, I'll do something with it. And I promised Hashem that if I had the chance to graduate from law school and pass the bar, then I would dedicate my professional career to helping people with disabilities who otherwise can't afford legal representation. And so what happened was, miraculously, I graduated, and then miraculously, I passed the bar, and I went back to my family's law firm, and we have a wonderful firm, and I told my brother and my sister and my dad that we are going to establish a public services division. And our public services division was never going to charge 
for legal representation. And we were going to absorb all the costs out of our own pocket. And I said, the reason that we have to do this is because a promise is a promise. And I made this promise. And because I made this promise, we have to do this. And basically, for 15 years, our firm would take on cases that no other firm would take. And it was myself. And I had two wonderful colleagues, associates, who would work with me. And basically, we would just take on these cases that we never should have won. We would fight with the city of Detroit to get them to fix the wheelchair lifts on city buses that reformed all of public transportation. We took on the airline industry so that now when you fly airports and air, it's a whole structure that we created so that now when people with disabilities want to travel, they have a right to travel. And, and the airlines had to modify airport. It was a huge case that basically involved U.S. aviation. We even took on, I was, used to be, uh, I say used to, I used to be a professor at the University of Michigan, and I sued the university because the stadium was inaccessible for paralyzed veterans, and they had to rebuild it to allow for all people to come, which actually created the now structure and guidelines that are used by all commercial facilities across the United States. And, and the thing is, is that there was some miracles that kind of came with this. And well, I know we're just about out of time, but there's some miracles that kind of came out of this because in every one of these cases, we never should have won. You were fighting against people that had 10 times the resources I did. When I fought with the University of Michigan, the University of Michigan told, uh, told me, they said that we have unlimited resources, unlimited. And you're going to just go up against us with unlimited resources? You're not going to survive this. They said, we have unlimited. We have a law school. We have Holland and Knight. We have Butts Long. We have all these people that we can employ to basically take you down. And you're going to fight with us? Are you kidding? And we did. And they had to rebuild this. The judge basically said, rebuild it. And they did. And the thing is, is, is that that's what Chabad believes. Chabad believes that if you take a chance, if you go out there, if you look at your Chabad rabbis, you look at these Chabad rabbis and you say to yourself, they say to you, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And you look at them and you say, that's insane. It's never going to happen. And they do it because it's the idea that if you are willing to work for it, if you are willing to take a chance, if you are willing to push for it, if you're willing to drive for it, if you're willing to say, you know what, I believe in my position, I believe in who I am, and I believe that I'm going to do this for the right reasons, and I can tell you the way that your Chabad rabbi will tell you, that Hashem will carry you the rest of the way if it's a just, if it's a noble, and if it's a righteous cause. And I'm going to end by saying this, and if they ever invite me back, we can do another... Um, <laughs> We can do another session about it, but I'm going to end with this. I'm going to end with this, because I know I'm surely probably over, but we're going to end with this. There's a story of a pessimist and an optimist. I mean, do we have a few more seconds to hear how we do things on the court? Okay, so they've given us, a, the rabbi's given us a few more minutes. So let me just talk very quickly, and then I'll wrap it up. Um, this is how things kind of work on the Supreme Court. So the way it works is there are seven Supreme Court justices. We are all elected, as we've talked about, statewide. So we're all kind of elected by the people. Now, we hear all cases. So what that means is whether it's a civil or criminal case, we are a court of last resort. So let's just use a typical case in the criminal capacity. The vast majority of cases that I deal with tend to be capital cases, which would be your typical murder case, right? That's the kind of case that we're going to get. So the, the type of cases that come to me 
are, let me just do a hip, quick, quick hypothetical kind of case that you can kind of just think about. Let's just say hypothetically you have a defendant, they are convicted of murder, right, in the lower court, in the trial court. They then appeal their conviction to the Court of Appeals. Now, if they get turned down by the Court of Appeals, they have one last chance, one chance. That's with my court. If my court says that we are going to grant leave, then you have one last chance at freedom. Now, what makes this job so intense is every Wednesday, we have what is called conference. At conference, every Wednesday, with the exception of today, <laughs> because we, it's a long story, but it's, it's all good. Um, so the way that it works is that basically every Wednesday there are 26 cases that come on the conference agenda. 26. Now, for all intents and purposes, this is someone's entire life that's basically hanging in the balance. Now, for the civil cases, you're dealing with everything. You're dealing with environmental regulations. You're dealing with utilities. You're dealing with um, parents losing their children. Like, for example, in many situations, if a mom is losing their custody of their child, they can appeal to us, and this is their absolute last resort that they can come to if to try to regain you know, custody of their child or even visiting their child. It's going to come to us. So every week, there's these 26 cases. Now, people say, as a blind person, how do you do the 26 cases? Now, you can't use Braille. Because if you're going to braille it, you can't braille a month-long trial. It's just not going to work. I have to use the transcript, so you can't use braille. For one printed page is going to correspond to 70 braille pages. It's not going to work. Now, you can't use your computer, because if I'm listening to my computer, I'm not able to discuss the case with the other judges, so that renders me useless. So what I do is I memorize all 26 cases every single week. And I spend 12 to 15 hours a day prepping for each case. Now, I can't remember the whole, like, a month-long trial, but I will know all the significant legal issues that are relevant for that case. So if it's a hearsay issue, if it's an evidentiary issue, not only will I know the issues that are relevant to that case, but it, since we're a common law system, I will know all the cases that correspond with that. So when the judges say, well, Richard, why do you think this is hearsay? I can recite all the relevant cases as to why that's hearsay. And I'm going to end with this. At the end of the day, nobody cares if you're blind or not. If you're willing to go out and run for this position, every single Wednesday someone's life is in your hand. And the hardest part of this job is when you get to case 23 and you got three left, you've got to pay just as much attention to those last three as the first 23 because literally it's someone's entire life hanging in the balance. And I'm going to end with this. The pessimist and the optimist met on the street. And the pessimist says to the optimist, why is the world such a harsh, challenging, and difficult place? To which the optimist responded by saying, I've always believed the world is what we choose to make it. We're here. We're in attendance because we believe what kind of a world this can truly be. Thank you, and may God bless each and every one of you. Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.